volume two chapter sixteen and seventeen of a strange world by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain sixteen i found him garrulously given the oldest inn in seacombe was the new london inn built upon the site of a still more ancient hostelry but itself nearly two hundred years old the quadrangular yard in which the coaches were wont to stand was now embellished with a glazed roof and served for the assembling of farmers on market days here was held the corn exchange and samples of grain were exhibited and bargains made amidst a lively hubbub while the odour of roast beef and pastry pervaded the atmosphere here maurice and martin parted the former telling his friend that he had business to transact in seacombe the young cornishman bidding his companion a reluctant farewell as soon as the dog-cart had driven off maurice strolled into the bar called for soda and sherry and surveyed his ground on the other side of the shining counter a comfortable-looking elderly matron in a black silk gown and a cap with rose-coloured ribbons was engaged in conversation with a stalwart grey-coated farmer who had been admitted to the privileged sanctorum within the landlady evidently thought maurice he sipped his sherry and soda and asked if he could be accommodated with an airy bedroom certainly sir you'd like a room on the first floor perhaps overlooking the street chambermaid show number ten i won't trouble you to look at the room thank you ma'am i've no doubt it's all that's comfortable there's not much fear about that sir i look after my bedrooms myself and always have done so for the last thirty years i go into every room in the house every morning after the chambermaids have done their sweeping and dusting and that's neither more nor less than a housekeeper's duty in my opinion just so ma'am it's a pity that kind of housekeeping should ever go out of fashion it is indeed sir you intend staying for some days at seacombe perhaps there are a good many objects of interest in the neighbourhood i am sorry to say that i shall have to leave to-morrow well good morning mrs chadwick said the farmer having drained his glass and wiped his lips with a flaming orange handkerchief mrs chadwick opened the half-door of the bar for him to go out and then holding it open politely invited mr clissold to enter you may as well sit down sir and take your soda and sherry she said nothing averse from a little gossip with the stranger i shall be very glad to do so answered maurice the fact is i want a little friendly chat with someone who knows seacombe and i dare say you know pretty well as much as any one else about the town and its inhabitants the landlady smiled as with inward satisfaction it's my native town sir i was born here and brought up here and educated here and i could count the months i've spent away from seacombe on my fingers it isn't everybody can say as much you were educated at seacombe said maurice then perhaps you may remember miss barlow's school for young ladies yes sir i remember miss barlow well but her school flourished after my schooling days and it was above my father's station no seacombe tradespeople ever went to miss barlow's their money might be good enough for most people but miss barlow wouldn't have it she set her face against anything under a rich farmer's daughter she had a good deal of pride stuck uppishness some people went so far as to call it had miss barlow and a very pretty show she used to make with her young ladies at the parish church in the west gallery on the left of the organ do you happen to remember the daughter of mr trevenard of Vorsel End? remember miss trevenard i should think i did she was about the prettiest girl i ever saw and the seacombe gentlemen would go out of their way to get a look at her 
i've seen them hanging about the church to watch miss barlow's young ladies come out and heard them whisper that's the bell of the school that's trevenard's daughter i thought she'd have made a rare good match when she left school but she never married and i believe she went a little queer in her head or was bedridden or some affliction of that kind while she was quite young i haven't heard anybody mention her name for the last twenty years not her own father even though he dines here every market-day that was young mr trevenard drove you here wasn't it i just caught a glimpse of him in the hall yes martin and i are great friends a very nice young man he is too and nice-looking but not a patch upon his sister do you know what became of miss barlow when she left seacombe well i've heard say that she went to the continent to cultivate music she had a fine finger for the piano and took a good deal of pride in her playing and after she'd lived abroad some years studying in a conservatory i suppose they teach em that way on account of the climate i heard that she came back to england and settled somewhere near london and gave lessons to the nobility and gentry and stood very high in that way she had made a nice little fortune at seacombe before she retired so she had no call to work unless she liked but miss barlow wasn't the woman to be idle she had a vast amount of energy a musical professor and residing in the neighbourhood of london it seemed to maurice that knowing this much he ought to be able to find miss barlow there was only the question of time how long is it do you imagine since you last heard of this lady he asked in a purely conversational tone well i can't take upon myself to say very particularly for a year or so but i think it might be about eight or nine years since i heard dr dorlick our organist say that a friend of his in london had told him miss barlow was residing in the neighbourhood of the parks and doing wonderfully well could i see dr dorlick do you think asked maurice eagerly dr dorlick is in heaven replied mrs chadwick with solemnity i'm sorry for that said maurice with reference to his own disappointment rather than dr dorlick's elevation he passed on to another subject also an important one in his mind how is it that you managed to do away with your theatre in seacombe he asked well you see sir returned mrs chadwick musingly i don't think the theatre ever fairly took with the seacombe people ours is a very serious town and though there's plenty of spare room in our old parish church a very fine old church as you may have seen with your own eyes but rather in want of repair there's always a run upon our chapels revival services and tea-meetings and love-feasts and what not people must have excitement of some sort no doubt and the seacombe people like chapel-going better than play-going besides which it costs them less i've no prejudices myself and i know that a theatrical is a human being like myself but i can't say that i've ever cared to see theatricals inside my doors but i suppose you used to go to the theatre sometimes when there was one once in a way i have gone to our theatre when there was a bespeak night or a london star performing more to please my husband who was fond of anything in the way of an entertainment than for my own pleasure do you remember the names of the actors whom you saw there no i can't call to mind one of them but if you take any interest in theatricals go and see mr clipcomb our hairdresser he'll talk to you for the hour together of our theatre and the people who've acted there he never cut my hair in his life that he didn't tell me how he once curled and powdered a wig for the celebrated miss foot to act lady teasel in it's his hobby indeed 
then i shall certainly look in upon mr clipcomb where does he live in a little court by the side of bethlehem chapel which was the theatre thanks mrs chadwick said maurice rising i'll step round to mr clipcomb at once and get him to give me the county crop i've been running to seed lately perhaps you'll be kind enough to order me a little bit of dinner in the coffee-room at half-past six with pleasure sir any choice none whatever i shall walk about your town for a few hours and get an appetite for anything you like to set before me a very agreeable gentleman thought mrs chadwick as maurice strolled out of the bar so chatty and friendly doesn't give himself half the airs of your commercial gents yet any one can see he's altogether superior to them mr clissold strolled through the quiet old town with its long straggling high street graced here and there by a picturesque gable or an ancient lattice but for the most part somewhat commonplace at one point there was a kind of square from which two lateral streets diverged a square with a pump and police office in the centre and a methodist chapel on each side one of these chapels the newest and smartest was bethlehem as an inscription over its portal made known to the world at large bethlehem eighteen fifty three and at the side of bethlehem once the temple of thespis there was a clean paved alley leading to another street an alley with a public-house at one corner and a few decent shops on one side facing the blank wall of the chapel one of these shops was the emporium of mr clipcomb who was at once tobacconist hairdresser and a dealer in fancy and miscellaneous articles too numerous to mention maurice found mr clipcomb standing upon his threshold contemplating life as exhibited in playhouse court where a small child in a go-cart and a woman cheapening bloaters at the greengrocer's were the only objects that presented themselves at this particular time to the student of humanity but then mr clipcomb had an oblique view of the square town pump and police station and in a general way could see anything that was going on from the vantage ground of his doorstep he was an elderly man stout and comfortable-looking but balder than he ought to have been considering the resources of his art and that he was himself the inventor of an infallible cure for baldness but he may have preferred that smooth and shining surface as cooler and more comfortable than capillary embellishment he wore a clean linen apron with a comb or two stuck in the pocket thereof an apron that was in itself an invitation to the passing pedestrian to have his hair cut on seeing mr clissold making for his door mr clipcomb stepped aside with a smile and a bow and made way for the stranger to enter his abode it was a very small abode consisting of a shop and a little slip of a parlour behind it both the pink of neatness and both agreeably perfumed with hair oil and lavender water there was a shining armchair with a high back whereon the patient sat enthroned during the hair-cutting process a looking-glass squeezed into an angle of the parlour reflected patient and operator a pincushion hung beside it balanced by a smart chintz bag containing a variety of implements but the object which most struck maurice's eye was an old playbill smaller than modern playbills and yellow with age framed and glazed and hanging against the wall just as if it had been some choice work of art it was the programme of a performance of othello that had taken place early in the century othello the moor of venice mr keen you remember the great keen said maurice yes sir answered mr clipcomb with pride i remember edmund keen and i remember charles young and miss o'neill and miss foot and mrs nesbit and mr macready and a good deal more talent such as you're not likely to see in these days seacombe theatre was worth going to in my boyhood 
and you were an enthusiastic patron of the drama i imagine if spending every sixpence of my pocket-money upon admission to the pit is a proof of enthusiasm i was an enthusiast sir replied mr clipcomb the sixpences which boys well i will venture to say boys of an inferior mind would have laid out upon cakes and apples peg-tops and such like i spent upon the drama there's hardly a line of shakespeare you could quote that i couldn't cap with another line i used to go to the pit of that theatre twice a week while i was a youngster and three or four times a week after my father's death when i was in business for myself and my own master and used to get a weekly order for exhibiting the bills and though there were a good many opposed to the closing of the theatre for ever i don't believe there was any one in all seacombe took it to heart as keenly as i did othello's occupation was gone why did they do away with your theatre at last asked maurice well you see sir the town had grown serious-minded and for some years before they turned it into a chapel the theatre had been going down the great actors and actresses were dead and gone and the stars that were left didn't care about coming to seacombe managers had been doing worse and worse year after year business dwindling down to next to nothing half salaries or no salaries towards the end of every season and it became a recognized fact in the theatrical profession that seacombe was no go the actors and actresses that came here were sticks or if not they made up in rant what they wanted in talent the county families left off coming to the place there were no bespeaks and the poor old theatre got to have a dilapidated woe-begone look so that it gave one the horrors to sit out a play the actors looked hungry and out at elbows it made one uncomfortable to see them many a time i asked one of them in to share my one o'clock dinner if it was but a potato pasty or a squab pie made with a scrag of mutton the stage door used to be just opposite my shop it's walled up now but you may see the outline of it in the brickwork the actors used to be always lounging about that doorway of a morning on and off and whilst the rehearsal was going on inside and they were very fond of coming into my shop for a gossip or a peep at a newspaper papers were dear in those days no standard or telegraph with all the news of the world for a penny and the poor chaps couldn't afford to lay out five pence you must have been on friendly terms with a good many of them said maurice feeling that from this loquacious barber if from any one in seacombe he was likely to obtain the information he sought do you happen to remember a man called elgood elgood matt elgood cried the operator dropping his scissors in the vehemence of his exclamation i should think i did indeed he was one who hung on to our theatre royal to the very last stuck to it like a barnacle poor fellow when there was not enough sustenance to be got out of it to keep body and soul together he lodged in this very court the last house on the other side next door but one to the theatre a tailor's it was then and a good little man the tailor was and a kind friend to mad elgood as long as he had a crust to share with him or a garret to shelter him but one day about a month after the theatre had shut up shop altogether the manager having bolted 
the brokers walked into poor jones's little place and took possession of everything and jones went to prison so that matt elgood and his wife a poor weak thing that had lost her first baby only a few weeks before that time were cast loose upon the world and what became of them from that hour to this i never heard if i'd had an empty room in my house i'd have given it to them but i hadn't and my wife is a prudent woman who never forgot to remind me that my first duty was to her and my children or in other words that charity begins at home do you remember the date of this occurrence the year and month in which matthew elgood left seacombe i may as well tell you that i do not ask these questions out of idle curiosity i am personally interested in knowing all about this mr elgood my dear sir exclaimed the barber swelling with importance at the idea of giving valuable information you could not have come to a better source if i fail to remember the dates you require i can produce documentary evidence which will place the fact beyond all doubt for a period of ten years or upwards i made it a rule to keep a copy of every playbill issued in our town they were delivered at my door gratis for exhibition in my window and instead of throwing them aside as waste paper i filed them as interesting records for reperusal in the leisure of my later life i am rather proud of that collection it contains the name of many a brilliant light in the dramatic hemisphere and indeed i look upon it as a history of dramatic art in little my impression is that elgood and his wife left seacombe nineteen years ago last winter but the bills will make matters certain matthew elgood was among that diminished band which trod the boards of our poor little theatre on that final night when the green curtain descended on the seacombe stage never to rise again the theatre remained in abeyance for some two or three years after that last performance dismantled shut up a refuse for rats and mice and such small deer nineteen years ago you say nor more nor less returned mr clipcombe who was wont to wax shakespearean i remember it was an extraordinary severe winter we had frost and snow a great deal of snow as late as the end of february and even into march some of the roads between seacombe and neighbouring villages were impassable and there was a good deal of trouble generally i felt all the more for those unfortunate elgoods on this account it was a hard winter in which to be cast adrift thanks mr clipcombe you have given me really valuable information i should be glad to refer to that file of bills so as to get the exact date of the closing of the theatre the hairdresser produced his collection roughly bound in a ponderous marble paper covered tome of his own manufacture a triumph in amateur bookbinding here maurice saw the last playbill that had ever been issued by the manager of the seacombe theatre its date was january tenth eighteen forty nine and mr elgood stayed at the tailor's for a month after the closing of the theatre interrogated maurice about a month having jotted down dates and facts in his notebook and reiterated his thanks to the good-natured barber maurice felt that his business in playhouse alley was concluded he bought some trifles in the shop on his way out an attention peculiarly pleasing to mr clipcombe from the rarity of the event his trade being chiefly confined to two pennies worth of hair oil or three half-penny cakes of brown windsor seventeen full cold my greeting was and dry 
a quiet evening at the new london inn and another confidential chat with its proprietress convinced maurice that there was nothing more to be learned in seacombe he led mrs chadwick on to talk of the family at penwin manor house the old squire and his sons who sanctified by the shadows of the past beautified by old memories and associations just as a ruin is beautified by the ivies and lichens that cling to its crumbling arches were dearer to the hearts of the elderly seacomites than the reigning squire and his lovely wife i don't say but what the present gentleman is better for trade and has done more good to the neighbourhood in two years than the old squire would have done in ten said mrs chadwick but the old squire was more one of ourselves as you may say he'd take his glass of cider a very temperate man was the squire in my bar parlour and chat with me as friendly and familiar as you could do and it was quite a pleasant thing to see him in his lincoln green coat and brass basket buttons and mahogany tops of george penwin mrs chadwick said nothing that was not praise he had been everybody's favourite she told maurice and his death had been felt like a personal loss throughout the neighbourhood was this a man to betray an innocent girl and bring disgrace upon an honest yeoman's household before leaving seacombe next morning mr clissold went to the parish church looked once more at the register in which he had seen the baptism of matthew algood's daughter and afterwards referred to the register of burials to assure himself of the child's death there was the entry emily jane daughter of matthew elgood comedian and jane elgood his wife aged five weeks january fourth eighteen forty nine just six days before the closing of the seacombe theatre maurice distinctly remembered justina having told him once in the course of their somewhat discursive talk that her birthday was in march and that she had completed her nineteenth year on her last anniversary now if mrs elgood had had a daughter born in december of eighteen forty eight it was not possible for her to have been the mother of justina if justina was born in the march of eighteen forty nine he had now no shadow of doubt that matthew elgood who had left seacombe in february in the midst of frost and snow was the same man who had sought shelter at borsal end and who had called himself eden a false pride had doubtless induced the penniless stroller to hide his poverty under an assumed name the plainest most straightforward way of doing things will be to tax elgood himself with the fact thought maurice once sure of my darling's identity with muriel's daughter my next duty shall be to discover the evidence of her mother's marriage and if i succeed in doing that well i suppose the next thing will be for some clever lawyers to prove her right to the penwin estate and churchill penwin and his wife will be ruined and justina will be a great heiress and i shall retire into the background hardly a pleasant picture of the future that perhaps it would have been wiser from a purely selfish point of view to have left my dear girl justina elgood to the end of the chapter or at least till i persuaded her to exchange that spurious surname for the good old name of clissold but now having gone so far won the confidence of a dying woman sworn to set right an old wrong i am in honour bound to go on not to the ultimate issue perhaps but at any rate to the assertion of my darling girl's legitimacy he rejoiced in the swiftness of the express which carried him homewards by stubble fields and yellowing woods rejoiced at the thought that he should be in time to see justina were it only one half hour before she went to the theatre he took a hansom and drove straight to hudspeth street told the man to wait and left his portmanteau and travelling-bag in the cab while he ran upstairs to the second-floor sitting-room matthew elgood was enjoying his afternoon siesta his amiable countenance shrouded from the autumnal fly by a crimson silk handkerchief 
justina was sitting at a little table by the window reading she looked a shade paler than when he had seen her last the lover thought fondly hoping that she had missed him but as she started up from her chair recognizing him with a little cry of gladness the warm blood rushed to cheek and brow and he had no ground for compassionating her pallor for a moment she tried to speak but could not and in that moment maurice knew that he was beloved he would have given worlds to take her to his heart then and there to have kissed the blushes into a deeper glow to have told her how supremely dear she was to him how infinitely deeper and holier and sweeter than his first foolish passion this second love of his had become but he put the curb on impulse remembering the task he had to accomplish to woo her now to win her promise now knowing what he knew would have seemed to him a meanness to-day i am her superior in fortune he said to himself a year hence i may be her inferior a very pauper compared with the mistress of penwin manor i will not win her unawares if change of fortune does come to pass i shall not be too proud to share her wealth so long as i have all her heart but if she should change with change of fortune she shall be free to follow where her fancy leads and no old promise made in her day of obscurity shall bind her to me free and unfettered she shall enter upon her new life so instead of taking her to his heart of hearts and pouring out his tale of love in a tender whisper too low to penetrate the crimson handkerchief which veiled the ears of the sleeper maurice greeted justina with a hearty loudness talked about his journey asked how the new piece at the albert worked out at rehearsal inquired about his friend flittergilt the dramatist and behaved altogether in a commonplace fashion there was just time for a cup of tea before justina started for the theatre and a very pleasant tea-drinking it was maurice was touched by justina's pretty joyous ways this evening her bright looks the silvery little laugh gushing out at the slightest provocation laughter which told of a soul that was gladdened by his presence i think i shall come to the theatre to-night he said as they parted what to see no cards you must be dreadfully tired of it no i believe i have seen it seven times but i could see it seven more answered maurice and this was the only compliment he paid justina that evening before parting with mr elgood he asked that gentleman to dine with him the next evening at eight en garçon we can go to the theatre afterwards to escort miss elgood home he added my dear clissold exclaimed the comedian with effusion after the bottle of port you gave me that sunday evening justina and i enjoyed your hospitality i should be an ass to refuse such an invitation End of volume two chapter sixteen and seventeen